Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're going to talk about oocyte cryopreservation. What? Egg freezing. Oh, okay. Yeah. You just take your eggs and you put them in a little ice tray. <laughs> you run some water under it. That's you put it in the freezer. Yep. And then, yeah, you've got eggs to go. Just don't get it mixed up with your regular ice cube trays. Yeah, please. That could be that could be bad. FYI, that's not how egg freezing works at all. Well, the reason why we're talking about it is because a little while back now in October, news broke that starting in January of 2014, Facebook had begun offering up to $20,000 of egg freezing benefits for employees under its lifetime surrogacy reimbursement benefit. And that starting in 2015, Apple will begin offering the same deal. And just FYI, JP Morgan and Citigroup have already had this benefit. Why that hadn't made headlines, I don't know. Um, and Google will likely follow suit soon. Um, but for whatever reason, this Facebook related news perhaps because of the Facebook connection to Sheryl Sandberg and leaning in and all of that. Mm-hmm. It generated so much conversation and a social media freakout, essentially. Yeah, there were all sorts of voices that emerged on all sides of this argument over whether this benefit for women would really, truly help them advance in the workplace, especially considering its price tag, which is is nothing to sneeze at. But uh, speaking of Sheryl Sandberg and Lean In, Jessica Bennett, who does a lot of work with the Lean In Foundation, wrote in Time magazine that this whole egg freezing deal would be the great equalizer. And she said that it's a potential solution to the so-called myth of opting out, essentially arguing that by allowing women to freeze their eggs and, and having it covered because it is super expensive, you're letting them choose when to have children and allowing them to choose to work harder, longer and have kids when they're supposedly ready. Now, not surprisingly, when it comes to Pretty much anything dealing with women choosing whether and when to have children, it attracts a lot of controversy of a lot of people saying that's selfish, that's preposterous, this is technology gone too far. So there are all of these voices also being tossed in lots of accusations of women just wanting to freeze away their eggs so that they can have casual dating lives and then become mothers on their own when they want to. What world that is, I, I really don't know. Um, so there, that was sort of all the background noise to it. But when it comes to its impact on women's workplace life, on the opposite side of um, Jessica Bennett talking about it being a great equalizer, we have Harriet Minter, for instance, at The Guardian saying that it's really just another sign of tech companies in particular being out of touch with what women really need. And also, this is a new demand for women to give themselves fully to their jobs. And that was a question raised in my mind as well in terms of I saw the news and I was like, oh, how progressive. And also, oh, wait, are they what does what is the mess, the ultimate message that it's sending? Yeah, I have a feeling the message was let's offer the richest benefits possible to attract the like strongest female employees we can possible. But of course, when it comes again to women choice and childbearing, there's a lot of projection. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting to look at all of those different voices um, because I think I think I fall somewhere in in the middle of those two of those two ladies as far as what they think it means. But um, we have to talk about the science of egg freezing and what it even is because contrary to the top of the podcast, it is not popping your eggs in your own freezer at home next to your Stouffer's or Lean Cuisine. True. I have, I don't think there are any hacks on the internet for how to retrieve your own eggs from your ovaries. Although one day, ladies, <laughs> perhaps one day. Um, in 1953, the first human birth from thawed sperm happened. And in 1986, so it's taken a while, the first birth from a frozen oocyte or egg happened. And so that's also an, an, something to keep in mind kind of in the back of your head as you listen to all of this is that Sperm preservation and freezing has been happening for a long time with far less fanfare and consternation than egg freezing, Um, but also the technology of freezing eggs successfully and then thawing those eggs and using them to successfully um, to then successfully implant, which would then lead to hopefully a successful pregnancy has been a lot more recent in coming because it's the largest cell in the body, and it's surrounded by a bunch of liquid that tends to crystallize during freezing. And when that liquid crystallizes, it breaks down the cell structure. And obviously, if that starts happening, it's not going to be very, it's not going to have good outcomes. Right. And so in 2004, we get a scientist in Japan who develops the process of vitrification or flash freezing, which has thus paved the way for more viable egg freezing today. And that's when you see a lot more women going to their doctors to ask about the possibility of not just preserving eggs in case of health problems or, or things like that, but to actually look into elective egg freezing because they just want to delay childbirth. Yeah, and elective egg freezing is a really new conversation because up until the past few years, it was really only cancer patients facing chemotherapy-induced infertility or other medical conditions that would adversely affect fertility who were the most common egg freezing patients. A lot of the conversation was simply directed to them. But now with vitrification, the focus has shifted to the elective egg freezing. And elective use now, in order to delay childbirth, was the reason cited by 64% of respondents in a 2010 study. And it was followed by uh, egg freezing to then be used for in vitro fertilization and then for medical reasons, tying at a distant second. So elective use has shot up in popularity. Totally, yeah. And so how does it work? Do they? Can you just go into the doctor one day and elect to have this done, or is there lead-up? Oh, boy, is there lead-up. You basically have to have somewhere between two and four weeks of self-administered hormone injections plus birth control, which basically kind of shuts off your natural hormones, followed by 10 to 14 days of more hormone injections to stimulate mature egg production. And then these ripe and ready eggs are removed by an ultrasound-guided needle and are immediately frozen at a temperature of negative 196 degrees Celsius or negative 320 degrees Fahrenheit. And they can be stored by some estimates up to 10 years, then thawed, then usually injected with a sperm, which is called intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And then hopefully that union of the thawed 
oocyte and sperm will develop into an embryo, which will then be implanted into a uterus, which will then hopefully lead to a successful pregnancy. Now, that's a lot of steps to get to hopefully baby in your arms. Um, so the question then is viability. What is the success rate? Well, the exciting thing that has led up to this uh, spark and interest around the elective use of egg freezing is that vitrification in particular has very much increased the success rate of thawing viable eggs. So when you hear about 90% plus success rates when it comes to egg freezing, that is not, my friends, that is not 90% frozen egg to baby in your arms success rate. That is a 90% success rate of thawing viable eggs, which is, you know, hailed as a success marker for vitrification. But when it comes to using it for in in the hopes of getting pregnant one day, as that being your go to in the case of, okay, you got a job at Facebook. Awesome. You want to really get in there or just delay childbirth for whatever reason. Choose your choice. I don't care. You get your eggs frozen. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will be able to plan out that you you won't necessarily be able to plan out becoming a mother. Right, exactly. And um a major sticking point in elective egg freezing was the fact that it was classified as an experimental procedure by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. A lot of their studies were like, yeah, um the slow freezing method of egg freezing is okay and people do it and a lot of uh cancer patients do it. Uh, people who are about to undergo chemotherapy do it. Um, but this whole vitrification thing, it's experimental. And so insurance companies, of course, follow suit and they're not going to cover it. But in 2012, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine took vitrification off of its experimental list, which opened the door for a lot of women to then seek it out as an option for them in their lives. However... In their report on this, when they took it off of the experimental list, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine talks about how data on the safety, efficacy, cost effectiveness and emotional risks of elective egg freezing are insufficient to recommend elective egg freezing for women. And they said making this technology for the purpose of just deferring childbirth may give women false hope and encourage women to delay childbearing. So basically the ASRM is saying to women, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Pun. Pun. We can make puns. Yeah. Right? We can make some oocyte cryopreservation puns. That's right. And the reason we're getting into this level of detail and, and maybe offering these important caveats is not to throw this new and exciting technology under the bus, but also to kind of highlight the fact that there was all of this controversy surrounding something that clearly a lot of people reacting to it didn't even understand the details of. Um, so let's get more in to those details. Let's talk about the age factor, because obviously when it comes to delaying childbirth, a lot of a lot of the women that are profiled in articles about it are in their early mid 30s, even late 30s, wanting to delay childbearing until their 40s. And we did a whole podcast on age and fertility, the whole biological clock thing. And we talked about how egg quality does deteriorate with age, especially after age 38. 
So when it comes to the prime time for getting your eggs frozen, doctors recommend freezing by the early 30s. I mean, if you can freeze your eggs in your early 20s, doctors are like, absolutely freeze those primo eggs. But that doesn't happen as much because if you are thinking about having a kid at that time, chances are you might just have a kid at that time. Well, speaking more about the age factor, the average age of women who are freezing their eggs for non-cancer related reasons is a little over age 37. Um, but uh, a story in Live Science, they used an online fertility calculator and found that a woman who freezes 15 eggs at age 32 has about a 28% chance of becoming pregnant by using them, although that 28% chance actually might be a high estimate. Yeah, the real world success rates are limited and there still have been very few births from thawed eggs. So keep in mind that the research is catching up to this technology and a lot of this research, too, on live births from uh, oocyte cryopreservation are from women who have had fertility issues. So as the ASRM uh, mentions, it would be interesting to see how these numbers would compare to women who are doing more elective um, egg freezing. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk about what we know right now in terms of success rates when we come right back from a quick break. So on the upside, and one of the reasons why in 2012, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, or the ASRM, took vitrification off its experimental list is because the research conducted so far suggests that IVF intro in vitro fertilization success rates are comparable for both frozen and fresh eggs with no additional risk of congenital abnormalities. But the implantation and pregnancy rates aren't a statistically sure bet. But the ASRM did point out, for instance, that eggs from European donors under age 30 resulted in pregnancy rates ranging from 36 to 61 percent. So more reason for starting younger, I guess. Possibly, um, because there was a 2013 study from the ASRM, uh, which is a meta-analysis of the age-specific probability of live birth with mature oocyte cryopreservation, which is probably one of the most comprehensive studies we have on this subject to date. And it found, quote, for example, the probability of live birth for a 30-year-old woman who has two to six eggs thaw is 24.4 to 24.1% with vitrification. When it comes to the slow freezing process, the probability of live birth drops to between 9 and 10%. And in this meta-analysis, they determined age 44 to be the upper age limit to even offer vitrification implantation of, uh, in other words, having the thawed eggs implanted into your, well, the thawed eggs then injected with sperm, then having that embryo implanted into your uterus. Although, again, this is still such preliminary data because a lot of it has been based on infertile patients. So the picture could change if you look at fertile patients freezing specifically to delay childbirth, not because of outside health reasons. Right. Well, so we just threw a lot of science and a lot of numbers at you. 
But let's get back to that point that we brought up at the top of the podcast where uh, certain writers have addressed the issue of what this will mean for women in the workplace. Will it be the great equalizer that, for instance, Jessica Bennett thinks it will be? Um, and it plays into a lot of the conversations that Kristen and I have had on the podcast as far as the idea, just the idea, of women having it all. That's right, because almost as soon as vitrification was taken off of its experimental status in 2012, all of these trend stories popped up on women in their mid to late 30s freezing their eggs. And only as far back as 2012, it was clear in the tone of a lot of these articles in response to it that people were approaching it very cautiously, that it seemed strange that these women were doing it. There was an air of desperation about it. For instance, there was this New York Times trend piece on parents, and this is, again, 2012, this piece on parents funding their older daughters egg freezing in the hopes that one day they would have grandchildren because she just hadn't found Mr. Right yet. Yeah, and not only do we have this piece on parents providing for their daughters to be able to have children at a later date, hopefully, We also have the trend stories about women who have shelled out thousands of dollars to go through this process and ending up having a more satisfying and relaxed dating life as a result. Uh, For instance, Sarah Elizabeth Richards wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in which she discussed spending $50,000 on the whole egg freezing process. And the fact that it revolutionized her dating life because suddenly she's not so worried about weighing every man's ability to be a father and a husband and all this stuff. She can just date to date and hopefully find love at her own pace because she knows that she has her eggs banked. Yeah. And what comes into a lot of these conversations are mentions of having it all leaning in owning yourself and still finding Mr. Right. And like all of these things, it's a lot of times these stories on it, uh, which profile these um, women in their mid to late thirties, early forties are very, it's, it fits a very particular mold of this um, woman today who um, we almost, it's like, it's not pity, but it's like this woman trying to, have it all, and yet she's sacrificed love for her career, but now she's found a way to get it back. And and in that Wall Street Journal piece, Richards even tosses in a cheeky reference to leaning in. Yeah. You know, she says, well, this is this is the way that we can do it because we can legitimately plan everything out. And she cites a lot of other women saying that as soon as they freeze their eggs, everything, all the dominoes seem to fall right into place. And then we have a story that features Bridget Adams, who launches the website eggsurance.com. Bridget was uh, going through similar things to Richards and to the uh, women featured in the New York Times piece on egg freezing, wanting to have children, not finding the right man. Um, and so she created this online community where women like her could come together and trade tips and tricks and advice and basically just communicate to each other about the whole process. Yeah. And in the Time article featuring her and other women as well, the lead was she's already got a copy of Goodnight Moon to read to her unborn child. And so there is an air of that. 
with a lot of these profiles in terms of these women. Look, look at these women. They already have they already have these books picked out, picked out. Some women already have names picked out. Right. And now they're freezing their eggs. And there's so little recognition of actual science. And I'm not trying to um, criticize these women's approach at all. It's more the portrayal. Right. Yeah. And uh, something that I was going to say as far as uh, Richard's leaning in on her reference and Bridget already having the books for her child, like that's all wonderful and you absolutely should plan. Um, but I mean, as we've kind of touched on earlier in this episode, the science and the numbers don't very strongly back up the assertion that you definitely will have a baby from this. And so while it is great, any time a woman can have a say over her reproductive choices in life, that's wonderful. And women should have more choices for everything and be able to choose the lives and the past that they want. However, a lot of people in these articles point out, like, while that's great, you might end up 42, totally ready to go have your eggs thawed and create an embryo and be ready to go. But it just might not happen, too. So there's always the... the the fear out there that while you've planned for this so carefully, things don't always go according to plan. But regardless, fertility clinics offering egg freezing have been reporting upticks in patients seeking the treatment. Clearly, word has gotten out that this is an issue, again, which is great, especially for um, couples who have been dealing with infertility or for women wanting to you know, take more control over their reproductive cycles. But this question, though, this ultimate question that that really got me and Caroline thinking and talking about this is this question of whether or not it is this great equalizer, particularly in the workplace. And when you look at the economics of egg freezing on top of the science and, and what we there's still a lot that we need to know in terms of viability and success rates that might change and technology will probably improve. But when it just simply comes to who can access this service, it it could be a great equalizer, but for very few women. Yeah. And I mean, this goes back to a lot of the criticisms that we've heard about lean in specifically in terms of like, it's wonderful advice. It's fantastic advice for career women, women who are in a very specific segment of the working population. But for a lot of women, like, say, shift workers, waitresses, things like that, the lean-in advice doesn't apply to their working lives quite as well. And so it's kind of the same thing when you have companies like Google and Facebook offering egg freezing. That's wonderful. But it is so expensive, and so it's really only open to very specific segments of the population. Yeah. For instance, that Facebook benefit covers up to $20,000 of this, which might sound very generous. And it is very generous. However, that would have not even covered half of what Sarah Elizabeth Richards, who wrote the that Wall Street Journal op-ed, an entire book about this, um, that would have covered less than half of the $50,000 that she spent on it because the cost for a single cycle of egg retrieval and freezing usually runs between five to $18,000, not including the cost of hormone injections, which can run a few grand, and egg storage, which is typically $500 per month, and the fact that it often requires more than one cycle to retrieve enough viable eggs. So at the end of the day, we're talking easily tens of thousands of dollars. There are some clinics that offer financial breaks, 
but it is highly, highly costly. Right. And Dr. Beth Kennard, who is the director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, points out something else about the price. She says that the first in vitro fertilization procedure was done back in 1978, but it's still not a technology and a procedure that every woman can afford to do. And it's been around for a while. And you take into account how new this vitrification process is, for instance, and the fact that it is so expensive. And it just makes sense that the price probably isn't going to come down a significant amount anytime soon. And speaking more on in vitro fertilization specifically, um, according to the CDC in 2010, about 1.5% of U.S. births we're through assisted reproductive technology, which includes IVF. So that's still that's still not a huge number. Yeah, I mean, if, if the, and, and Rebecca Mead made a great point about this at the New Yorker, saying, "Fine, well, and good for you to offer this as part of a comprehensive surrogacy benefit package to your employees. Companies go for it. However, if we really want to tackle." That myth of opting out, the whole motherhood versus career, all of these conversations that even as a, a woman who is not a mother, I think about a lot in terms of is this something can I handle this in my reproductive future? If we really want to tackle that, it's going to take a lot more than some egg freezing benefits because American women continue to face Issues such as the fact that we have limited availability to subsidize care for preschool children. There is, quote, the resistance of corporate culture to flexible or reduced hours for the parents of young children and a lack of federally mandated paid family leave. The U.S. is far behind so many other countries when it comes to maternity and paternity leave as well. There, yeah. there There's a lot going on that egg freezing is not going to fix. And I think that something as hyperbolic as the great equalizer needs to be accessible to more than just the very top elite percent of women who are getting jobs at these top elite companies. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it is great. I mean, we've established this. You've said this, like it is great that these companies are offering it, of course, but it, it, it just seems like they're trying to fill in the gaps that they can. Um, because we have, I mean, we're in the dark ages in our country as far as providing these types of benefits to mothers and families who are looking to have children, take care of children, but also continue to work and have a full life that way. Um, I, I, I agree totally with Rebecca Mead that we have so many just like society issues in our country that need to be examined. It's great that this egg freezing thing is an option for people. That's wonderful that anytime you can, like I said, anytime you can have control over your reproductive health, but the criticism comes in when it's only open to a very certain segment of people. Well, and even for that segment of people that the option might be financially available uh, to, it's still crucial to understand the science behind it right. and understand that there are a lot of steps involved and it, it isn't necessarily locking down a guaranteed future. And perhaps, though, as, as the data continues to roll in on the success rates, particularly for um, fertile women taking advantage of elective vitrification, is maybe taking a step back, too, and also addressing the social and cultural factors at work that 
create so much panic and freak out over the idea yet again of women having some potential say over childbearing. Yeah, I mean, we we haven't even gotten fully into that issue in this episode because I feel like that could be its own episode. But I mean, Kristen and I definitely were talking about the comments that we saw in a lot of these articles featuring these women who'd made this life choice. And a lot of people, again, it was the the old refrain of how selfish Um, it was the refrain of, you know, you're going against nature or God. Um, You are breaking up what a family should be when in reality it's like, okay, first of all, just lay off these women for making their personal choices. But, but second of all, a lot of these women that are featured in these stories, they do want a family. They do want a a life partner to raise a child with, but because of just the way that things are structured and the way that things have shaken out, you know, their career has come first or they just haven't found the right person. But I heard in a lot of those stories, too, the echoes of this, to me, tired and outdated and honestly misleading myth of having it all. Yeah. I think that it's time to get rid of that goalpost because it is a complete mirage. Yeah. But now we want to hear from you. I have a feeling there are a lot of thoughts running through listeners' heads right now, and we want to hear from you on this issue. What do you think about it? And would you take advantage of this? Have you taken advantage of this? If you're a woman who has frozen her eggs, we absolutely want to hear from you, too. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast and message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to the show. Well, I've got a Facebook message here from Maddie about our episode on vegetarianism or being a Pythagorean, if you're old school like that. He writes, my name is Matt from Sydney, Australia. Been listening to the podcast for a while now and thoroughly enjoy it. I only just listened to the vegetarian episode and had some thoughts. I've been Vigo now for two years. I grew up in a very meat-centric family and circle of friends. I was even an apprentice butcher for a couple of years. I decided to stop eating meat mostly for environmental reasons. I understand the ethical and health aspect of it too, but it was the waste resources and farmland that cattle needed that really got to me. I do have to admit that I'm still a little overweight, but try to keep it fairly healthy. It wasn't until I listened to the podcast that I realized the vast majority of my friends who are vegetarian or vegan are indeed female. When I first stopped eating meat, the most grief I got was definitely from my male meat-eating friends. It also is still tough to be the only person at a very big family at Christmas who doesn't partake in the two turkeys and two hams we have every year, but my family is starting to get used to it. But it's when I go out with my guy friends that it's the toughest. I don't know if they're just curious or recognize that I'm an easy target, but I get a lot of slack from them. To the point to where I've actually lost friendships because of it. It's probably for the best, but it sucks that in 2014, some people can still be so against the idea. It confuses me. It confuses me too, Matt. Um, I have a letter here from Sarah about our um, Women in the Art of Dying episode where Kristen and I interviewed Kate Sweeney. Um... 
Sarah shares a great story. She says, I don't know if this is necessarily a death ritual, but my aunt Roxanne, who passed about three years ago from breast cancer, requested that some of her ashes be left in Japan where she was born. I happened to travel there about a year after her passing and ended up taking a small bag of her ashes with me. I spread them in this beautiful snow-covered canyon in a national park, but it wasn't easy. As I was pulling her ashes out from my coat pocket, a large male Japanese macaque monkey jumped out and charged me. I tried walking away from him, but he kept jumping up at my hands, grabbing for the crinkly bag that he thought had food. I ended up having to turn my back on the greedy monkey to quickly pass the ashes off to my boyfriend, who then walked one way down the path while I walked the other way, with the snow monkey following me. The macaque was eventually distracted by another group of tourists passing by with the crinkly items, and I was able to spread my aunt's ashes in peace. I'm pretty sure she was the one who sent the monkey, as she always had a mischievous sense of humor. So thank you so much for your story, Sarah, and I'm not laughing at you, I'm laughing with you. And thanks everybody who's written into us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also find links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with links to our sources so you can follow along with us at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 